When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Escaping Denver. Supplementary. Interview with Jonathan Kay. All right, let's jump right into it. Yes, we're at a bit of a standstill when it comes to Noah and Sarah's journey, but that doesn't mean the work stops. I don't know about you, but I still have more questions than when I started this, and I don't plan on waiting out on any more magical messages to help me solve them. I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing so far, trudging along, researching where I can research, and talking to more experts when the opportunity arises. While it's relatively easy to look up some of the things Noah says or alludes to, or that Sarah interacts with, it's a little harder for me to understand Noah himself. Sarah, I get. I don't know her, but I get her. She didn't believe in any far-out conspiracy theories before she found herself waist-deep in it, and that I get. Noah, on the other hand, believed. I've got hours of messages that should be proof enough for me that the world has way more going on than I first thought, and even I'm still on the fence. Noah had nothing. From what I can surmise, he probably lived a very mild and inoffensive life before all this started. He went on adventures of the mind, but I'd be surprised if he owned an actual pair of hiking boots. He believed without having experienced anything, at least not that he's mentioned. But what made him believe in the first place? That's what brought me to journalist and author Jonathan Kay. He wrote a great book on the conspiracist underground that exists in the United States and how easy it is to fall into that mindset. He's the perfect skeptic to help me understand Noah's thinking. So we are here with uh, Jonathan Kay, author, journalist uh, of the book Among the Truthers, it's a long title. Among the Truthers, a journey into the growing conspiracist underground of 9-11 truthers, birthers, Armageddonites, vaccine hysterics, Hollywood know-nothings, and internet addicts. That's a title. And you cover a lot in this book. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me on. So I'm just going to jump straight into it. You're a journalist. You're a legitimate journalist. You've covered all sorts of topics. What, what brought you down the rabbit hole of uh, pursuing these conspiracy theorists or conspiracy theories, really? Uh, this was in the late 2000s, and I was an editor at a newspaper, and I was always getting letters. I mean, this is the era when people would send in physical letters, but I'd also get email and even phone calls from people who had, who are clearly deeply invested in conspiracy theories. And 
especially in regard to 9-11 conspiracy theories, I was amazed at how much time uh, and, and energy they put into it and how detailed these theories often were. These weren't dumb people. Uh, many of them, in fact, I think, were, were highly intelligent. And I became really interested in why they thought these things. Uh, and that's really what the book is about. That, I mean, and this is an old book. This came out uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and a lot has changed since then, but that 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 was my uh, that was my motivation. And what did you find uh, was attracting people into these into these theories? Uh, in in some ways, the answer, although a lot of the, the stuff that I talked about in the book was was new, so like you know, web video was new, uh, loose change. There were a lot of uh, the production cost for web propaganda, video propaganda was was coming down. So you had a lot of people, whereas it might formerly have cost like a million dollars to make a documentary about 9-11 or something, you know, you could now do it for a few thousand dollars. And uh, so I talked about these new phenomena, but a lot of what I talked about was 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 literally ancient. Uh, man's Mankind's obsession with the roots of evil, the roots of suffering, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, religion exists in, to some extent to answer those questions. We now live in a largely post-religious society, so we need different ways of answering these questions. Uh, but the other thing is distrust. And explaining evil is different from venting distrust because distrust is often a secular phenomenon. You distrust your government, you distrust your media. You can also distrust religious authorities. And you see that, I mean, among Catholics, for instance, the last few decades, we've seen a lot of distrust because of revelations about uh, sex scandals. But distrust in public institutions is an absolutely universal element among conspiracy theorists. Because when I would ask them, like, when did you start believing these things? It always would start with, some variant of, well, when I realized I was being lied to by the media or by government uh, or by big corporations. Uh, and, and that creation of a spirit of distrust often it set off a, a chain reaction because they say, well, if the media is lying to me about this, what else are they lying to me about? And I say media, I mean, it's, it's all our public institutions. Um, and, and, and distrust is... It, it's very difficult to contain distrust uh, in a person. So for instance, in our personal relationships, if you distrust a person with money, you often will distrust them in regards to everything, like as a romantic partner or as a truth teller or as a teammate or as a, a coworker uh, or as a supplier or like- um, The distrust if, spreads. Distrust spreads within a personal relationship, but it also spreads within one's attitude towards society at large. Um, you know, it's very rare that you meet somebody who, who will say, uh, I completely lack trust in uh, Justin Trudeau's, for instance, uh, ability to manage the economy, but I completely trust him to manage our uh, foreign relations or something. I mean, usually if a person distrusts a human being, they distrust him across the board. Uh, so because of that, there's no natural limit on where that distrust will take you, which is why sometimes a legitimate sense of distrust, because it, it is legitimate to question the motives of politicians or business leaders or the media. We should be doing that. You can't just trust everything. But because 
there's no natural limit on where that distrust takes you. Uh, you see a lot of very smart people take it all the way into some really extreme views about, you know, 9-11, uh, where Barack Obama was born, the moon landing, uh, vaccines. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's, it was, a, going back to your original question, it was an explanation for an evil, an explanation for, for evil, for why bad things happen, number one, and number two, a way to express a runaway sense of distrust in the power sources in our society. Well, yeah, you say in your book, essentially, that what the 9-11 truthers have in common with essentially all conspiracy theories, or a great deal of them, is that there's uh, a single overarching power, maybe access to some sort of sophisticated technology or access to some sort of tool that the normal everyman does not, and then also that the media is likely part of it. Right. So um, the way the human mind works, and you see this in movies, you see it in, in religions where human, the human mind, and I can't totally explain this, but the human mind is very bad at conceptualizing multiple sources of evil. Uh, so if you like, there's, there's very few movies where there's like two villains. Like there's, uh, I can't, I'm not even sure I can think of one. Uh, it's usually like one villain, um, religions that have a point source of evil. It's like, you know, there's a devil um, or, you know, there's maybe multiple devil figures, but there's like a head devil um, and, and, and political, like extreme politics. Uh, it's usually about tracing um, all the evils in the world to like, you know, with protocols of elders of Zion, which is anti-Semitic conspiracy theory is like this, this small group of, Jews who wanted to wreck everything. But you, you saw that in, in other forms of conspiracy theories, like it was the Illuminati or it was the Trilateral Commission or it was... Um, uh, New World Order is the one I... New World Order, yeah. Um, um, often, like, people obsess over George Soros. And, I, you know, George Soros is a very wealthy person and not everyone agrees with what he does with his philanthropy. But... Uh, like in the popular imagination, everything goes to him. I remember I was reading a Canadian author, a very popular woman who wrote a book about capitalism and she tried to trace everything back to Milton Friedman. And, you know, again, Milton Friedman, very influential economist, but I was just struck by the way that like in, in her imagination and not just her imagination, it's like a popular thing across the political spectrum. It's like, it always comes back to, to you know, either Karl Marx or some people are obsessed with Freud or some people are obsessed with, um, you know, like a, a religious figure in their society um, or, or a group within their society. So yeah, it's this, this point source thing. And I'm not sure it's as popular now because it's become a sort of cliche, but uh, I talk about these like pyramid flowchart diagrams that a lot of these conspiracist movements had, which is you'd have some ultimate evil on top and it would spread its tentacles, you know, depending on the metaphor to all these uh, subsidiary uh, evildoers. And, and often in these diagrams, you would see the media represented. But the media is, is a more interesting thing because uh, I talk about this in the book, how you would, talk, you would ask somebody, well, if, if this sort of evil conspiracy is going on, how come the, the media isn't reporting it? And they'd say, well, the media is in on it. So, so the media isn't just thrown in as like a random co-conspirator. The media, it's essential that they're there because, and then, and then you'd say, well, how come, you know, the judiciary isn't? whistleblowing. Well, they're part of it too. And in fact, people ask me, how can you tell a conspiracy theory from a regular kind of just like skeptical attitude toward government? 
And I say, it isn't the content of what they're arguing, because people argue all kinds of things. It's the manner in which they argue. So the conspiracist technique for arguing is like, imagine a series of concentric circles where, you know, well, the 9-11 conspiracy was hatched by, by Bush and Cheney. It's like, and well, what about the CIA? Well, they were in on it. Well, what about the media? Well, they were in on it. Well, what about, you know, the House of Representatives and the Senate? Now, you know, how come they haven't investigated? Oh, they're in on it too. And so you keep expanding the set of concentric circles and until, so it, it doesn't matter what objection you have to the conspiracy theory, that objection can be overcome just by creating bigger and bigger circles. That manner of argumentation is foolproof because, you know, anyone can draw big circles. But uh, to, to my mind, that betrays the conspiracist line of thinking because there's, there's literally no evidence, or at least there's no authority figure you can cite that would disabuse the person of the conspiracy theory because all they have to do is just expand their set of conspirators another level and they'll swallow it up. Like a Russian nesting doll. Of, yeah, yeah, it's of, exactly of like, lies. It is like Russian dolls, yeah. So yeah. my question is, wouldn't there need to be some seed of truth or something at the heart of it to, to kind of justify these rings? I mean, a snowflake starts on a speck of dust. Right. It needs that speck of dust. Yep. Where does this nesting doll, where do these yeah. concentric circles start? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a substrate or a, um, um, a point of, of uh, catalyzing. Um, so, the, well, the, the fuel of it uh, is, is, as I said, distrust. Um, Barack Obama's birth certificate is, is an interesting case study because if you wanted to say, oh, you know, what, what's the seed of doubt or, or what's the uh, uh, grain of salt there that's at the, at the core of it, um, there is the fact, well, you know, he was the most liberal president in American history, but that in itself is, is not a crime or anything like that. Um, Barack Obama had an unusual backstory. Um, you know, if you look at the backstories of other presidents, you know, tends to be kind of like more of a leave it to beaver type, uh, you know, very traditional uh, you know, middle-class G-shucks childhood, uh, and often lots of privilege. Uh, but Obama had like a genuinely unusual upbringing and his father and his relatives on his father's side, you know, <laughs> some of them, uh, they're very unusual backstories by the standards of American politics. And because of that, if you were inclined to think that, he was some kind of interloper who had some kind of weird agenda. Um, you, you at least had a kind of canvas to draw on. It wasn't like, for instance, I, I actually read Mitt Romney's, uh, someone wrote a biography of Mitt Romney. And actually Mitt Romney's ancestors themselves are actually quite unusual because they were, uh, there was a whole Mexican subplot and they were uh, Mormons, as you know. Uh, and there's some, like, there's some, in the 19th century, there was some pretty weird stuff in Mitt Romney's uh, background. But, in the last couple of generations, you know, Mitt Romney's backstory, you know, socioeconomically is like just this completely normal, boring backstory for a lot of political figures have. Uh, and so in Obama's case, you had this extremely liberal politician who had a genuinely unusual backstory by the standards of American politics. And so people sort of projected uh, any fantasy they wanted. Um, you know, some variations of the fantasy were that I don't know, he was Muslim, uh, he came from Indonesia, he came from Kenya. So like, you know, people who had this idea that he was going to turn America into some kind of Afrocentric uh, place, they focused on Kenya. The, the ones who focused on the Islamic thing, they focused on Indonesia as a possible birthplace. 
uh, but they were trying to shoehorn it into some existing narrative of distrust. And this is another ingredient that I talk about. Um, conspiracy theorists, con conspiracy theories typically are theories of illegitimate power. So they, they look at the status quo and at least implicitly, they try and make the argument that the status quo power structure is not morally legitimate. Uh, so like in the case of European anti-Semites, they would look at the liberal governments of, um, you know, or nominally liberal governments of, of the late 19th century, early 20th century, and they would say, you know, these were installed, these are artificial governments propped up by Jews. In fact, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, uh, as, as I remember, was, was created by czarist propagandists, uh, you know, czarists, monarchists who were, who were trying to discredit the forces of liberalism. And if you read the, the protocols, it, uh, liberalism is, is heaped on this sort of great pile of, of intellectual crimes that are laid at the feet of, of Jews, along with capitalism and all this stuff. And, um, and it's, the, the narrative is that the, the liberal course of European politics, at least following the 1848 revolutions in Europe, is somehow like morally illegitimate. And the proof that it's morally illeg illegitimate is that it's being masterminded by these uh, morally depraved in individuals. And a lot of Barack Obama conspiracy theorists, if you scratch the surface and interviewed them, what they really were hoping to prove was that the election that brought Barack Obama to power for the first time was like somehow morally Ill illegitimate. It, it's actually not that different from the narratives of Trump conspiracy theorists who, um, who have these, I mean, for them, it's not like this, it's actually, these conspiracy theorists are much more boring because they're not really about religion or ethnicity. It's about like, you know, some, <laughs> you know, like the deputy secretary of state in Georgia or something like that, how he's like paid off by this or that. Like it's- Is, that, it's, is that the case with any new conspiracy theory? You know, the fresh ones feel less and less legitimate the longer the longer the story, because I'm I'm a complete outsider, but right. I I'd heard yeah. of the Illuminati, um, I I'd heard of New World Order. Right. right. These th these have been around long enough that through osmosis I've collected that information as well. But um, you know, these fresh ones that are aren't rooted in religion or aren't rooted in some larger form. Well, it's in a way, it's harder to create conspiracist mythologies now just because everything is so richly documented. Um, so like the JFK assassination, the only film that exists of the event is the so-called Zapruder film. I think Zapruder was the name of the guy who filmed it. And it says like this grainy black and white thing. And one of the reasons JFK conspiracism is such a rich subculture is that if you go frame by frame through the Zapruder film, which like every JFK conspiracy theorist has done, you know, there's all kinds of weird little details like the umbrella man or the grassy knoll or the angle at which, you know, the president's head uh, fell when it was hit by the bullet. And all of these little details become grist for analysis. If something like the JFK assassination happened now, it would be recorded by several hundred different people from several hundred different angles on cell phones and stuff like that. And as soon as somebody came forward with a theory about the umbrella man or something like that, there'd be two dozen people on Twitter who are like, well, actually here's a video that shows that that's, that's not true. Um, so it's, it's very, it's now very easy to demystify or debunk conspiracy theories. Uh, or in the case of, uh, you know, JFK, like, 
The United States had to wait a long time for the official report into the JFK. Even in 9-11, it took something like 440 days for George W. Bush to to order an uh, an inquiry into 9-11. And and after that, it took a long time after. So it was on the scale of months and years that people actually got the full information. This is before the full use of, uh, before the cell phone camera era and before the social media era. Uh, now you have all kinds of so-called citizen reporting and all kinds of things. And it's, it's become much more difficult to, to create like a sense of mystic certainty about a conspiracist narrative since so much evidence exists to debunk it. And, and we saw this in the case of, uh, of the Trump conspiracy theorists who were certain that the election was stolen. But like their claims usually just appeared preposterous because um, this was like one of the most carefully scrutinized elections in the history of the United States, you know, for precisely the, this reason that, <laughs> that, that everybody knew whoever won, uh, whoever lost, there would be these kind of accusations. So it was very difficult to, to, weave, to weave this kind of narrative. Uh, and, and as a result, the, the narratives that you do see just tend to be kind of ridiculous and, and more grubby. Like, um, you know, you had Rudy Giuliani saying things that were just were, were untrue. Like, I mean, he became a figure of ridicule very quickly. Um, whereas like the best conspiracy, if you could call, if you could use that term, the best conspiracy theory, the best conspiracy theories, theories have the quality of kind of like an enchanting, eerie, kind of like action movie with compelling villain figures and tapping into deep fears uh, that exist in all societies, like really dark fears about uh, foreigners and evildoers and uh, fifth columnists operating within our midst. midst. Um, it's, 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 it's like kind of Star Wars where, you know, the star of Star Wars was, was Darth Vader. Um, Luke Skywalker is actually a fairly boring character. And, and conspiracy theories is the same way, is the real star is, is the villain. And you need a good villain to, uh, to attract a mass following. So in the case of Area 51 or the Denver Airport conspiracy theory right. or and any of those, those are really just the arena. The villain is who's ever well, keeping it yeah, I mean, hidden. UFO, UFO conspiracy theories are a little different because like <laughs> UFOs are really cool. Um, you know, I don't know that I'm not, I don't think there's any evidence UFOs exist. But the nice thing about UFOs is to the extent they exist, we can like make up any form we want. Uh, like, so in the case of UFOs, one really interesting thing is that I think I mentioned this in the book that after ultrasound technology became popular for mothers to see what their babies looked like inside their, their stomachs. Um, and everyone saw that it kind of looked, you know, fetuses look, depending on your point of view, they, I mean, they look kind of creepy. Uh, they, they, and all these UFO movies started popping up in which the UFOs looked a lot like a fetus and um, UFO uh, experts, I mean, UFO reporting experts, you know, people who wrote books about the UFO phenomenon reported that it was around this time that people who claimed to have been abducted by aliens reported that the aliens looked a lot like human fetuses. Um, because clearly like in their minds, people were kind of like weirded out by the fact that they could now see inside a gestating woman's stomach and it just influenced the way they, they thought about UFOs and they, they projected their idea of 
what a UFO would look like on their sightings. Well, and like I said, this is, um, this is one of the ingredients of a successful conspiracy theory is that you have uh, either a visually or, or, or a mythologically a, appealing villain figure. Um, and, 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 and I mean, UFOs are cool. They're exciting. Uh, in the same way, 9-11 conspiracy theories, like there were all these really esoteric theories about like space lasers and holograms and, you know, the functioning of NORAD and scrambling jets and internal demolition. You know, this is Jason Bourne stuff. Oh, and as I wrote in the book, it's not surprising, like most 9-11 conspiracy theorists are men. And if you, if you went, I don't know if they still are regular, but if you went to 9-11 conspiracy theory conventions, like I'm people who take the conspiracy theory seriously, I'm not talking about like academics studying it. It was typically men and the few women there were like the bored girlfriends or wives of male conspiracy theorists who are like into all this Buck Rogers, Jason Bourne, uh, cloak and dagger stuff. You know, whereas there are other conspiracy theorists, um, other conspiracist movements sending around vaccines and stuff, which, uh, or health issues, which are predominantly female, but, but that's another story. Well, so we talk about these, uh, it's mostly men in these conspiracy theories. In, that are, in those these, particular, in those stuff. particular, yeah. but yeah. these, this pursuit of Buck Rogers, let's yeah. explore, let's see what's out there. That's, that's been going on for ages. You know, yep. we've, it's, I don't know if it's describing, like you said, uh, trying to come up with a definition for describe evil, but you talk about cryptids, you talk about Bigfoot all along the West, the Western coast of the U S yeah. and Canada, very similar reports, uh, all across North America, really. You talk about the chupacabra, you talk about some of these newer ones that are popping up. I mean, how do they even, how are they even cropping up in an age where we have so much access to videos and proof? I mean, is the argument that it's lack of evidence is evidence, lack of evidence that they don't exist? Well, it's, it's imp- like you could, I don't know if you've been to, the, to, to Northern Scotland, um, but these, like the place where the Loch Ness Monster is supposed to, uh, supposed to live, you know, I've, I've been there. Uh, it's like, <laughs> it's not like the sort of lake we imagine in North America. Like these are really deep, dark, large bodies of water uh, that go down hundreds of feet. And we, it's, it's easy to imagine if you let your imagination run away with you, that there is some kind of like horrifyingly large monster in there. And, and a lot of these monsters prey on our just natural fears about the wild, which is, is part of our evolutionary programming. Like human beings are, are wired to be scared to some extent of dangers that exist in the wild. Uh, whether it's snakes or sea creatures. I mean, there's still many parts of the world where people die regularly from being hauled into the water by crocodiles. And a lot of the monsters that exist in myth look a lot like a crocodile, or they look like uh, another terrifying, you know, snakes or flying lizards or, you know, uh, giant beasts of the wild, like lions or something, or they have the head of this and the body of that. Like it's, um, it's essentially an extrapolation of our evol- evolutionarily conditioned fears of, and we also have evolutionarily conditioned fears of outsiders, uh, which is, is the root to some extent of racism and other forms of bigotry and xenophobia, which is in many ancestral environments in which our ancestors lived, it really was inherently dangerous to, to have any contact at all with, with members of, of people outside your kin group, because you didn't, you didn't know 
whether they were competing for resources with you and maybe their group is on the brink of starvation and uh, they might do horrible things to keep their families alive. Like, like these aren't, again, you talked about um, whether there was a, a grain of truth to a lot of these things. Um, our, our, our minds are conditioned to some extent for fear and distrust of outsiders and, and conspiracy theories often, often represent an extrapolation of those of, of that psychological reality. I only have one more question before we lose you for sure. the day. Yeah. Um, you talk to a lot of people, a lot of passionate people right. who truly believed uh, yeah. in, in their belief system uh, of what was going on with their conspiracy theories. Were you ever compelled by the evidence? Did you hear anything that, that made you give more than just pause? No, no, I didn't. But you know, it's a lot of it is just your personality type. Um, like I'm the sort of person who, uh, you know, <laughs> and this is why, um, you know, this is why I've never joined a political party and uh, I'm not a good fit for like, a, you know, at my last job, I, I, I was a bad fit because as soon as someone starts telling me, you know, here's the ideological viewpoints we believe, like I immediately start looking to poke holes in them. Um because I, I always, I, I resent the idea that they're propagandizing me or trying to draw a box around what I'm allowed to believe. And so, I mean, that's just, that's a, that's a personality thing. That's not an intellectual quality. That's kind of just who I am. And, um, uh, so I, no, I, I never came to, to, however, it's really, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because I, there was one event I remember it was in Montreal in 2009 and I went with a relative and we went to go see this guy speaking about 9-11. And I remember specifically, the guy was talking about Building 7. And Building 7 is this huge talking point. I'm not going to go into the details, but if, if you know anything about 9-11 conspiracy mythology, you'll know that WTC 7, you know, World Trade Center 7, Building 7, uh, occupies a huge place in their mythology. And uh, this person I was with, who's, you know, like me, similar educational background, similar outlook on life, similar politics. Uh, like I could see they were getting kind of glassy eyed and they're like, Oh my God, you know, that's, that's, they weren't exactly saying, Oh, it's all true. It's, it's an inside job. Like, uh, you know, wake up sheeple. Like it, it wasn't like that. But I remember on the way home, we were like, she was, wow, that, that really, you know, that, that was so spooky. And what do you think? And buildings don't just fall like that. Um, and you know, in, in the days following that, she stopped thinking that way. But I could tell that if she were with, if, if I were a 9-11 conspiracy, conspiracy theorist or her friends were 9-11 conspiracy theorists or a more realistic scenario that she was like a YouTube fanatic and she was just like kept clinky, clicking on links to all these videos. Because that's the thing, right? It says, you know, it's related videos and it, it takes you down a rabbit hole even if you don't want to go on a rabbit hole, like YouTube and other sites like it will suggest, keep suggesting thematically similar content. Uh, she, she easily could have become totally suckered into that field. Um, but again, that's, that's just this person's ideal, like personality type. I have also seen this person become radicalized, at least temporarily on other issues. And um, that's kind of just who this person is. And it, it's not a good feature or a bad feature. Like, to some extent, my skepticism of propaganda that I hear is like, it limits me to, you know, I don't, I can't really join a political movement because I, I always sense that it's bullshit or, or like, I, 
I'm programmed to like actually search enthusiastically for something in it that I don't like. Like it's just kind of my, my personality and she's maybe a little bit on the other side. Um, but, but it has nothing to do with intelligence. Like this person is, is, is very smart and um, it's, and, and, as, and it's against stereotype. This is a woman. So, you know, I said that almost all 9-11 conspiracy theorists are men. She's, uh, a lot of it is, is yeah, is personality type. Um, but what's interesting is that I think they have done studies, or at least they had when my book was published, about what are the risk factors for conspiracy theorists. And the only risk factor they could find is that you believe in other conspiracy theories. So if a person already believes in conspiracy theories about 9-11, they're much more likely to believe in conspiracy theories about like uh, vaccines or about, um, you know, the new world order or about global warming. Um, because again, we talked about how distrust metastasizes and but so, is, is there a world where all of those, to use your term, concentric circles of these, their different conspiracy theories, it, you know, that in some way they've justified how they overlap a central uh, point that connects them all. Well, what, what connects them all typically, or at least when people believe multiple conspiracy theories, uh, it tends to believe they tend to coalesce around a theory of evil. So if a person believes like, you know, I believe the globalists are, are behind all this, or I believe the Jews, or I believe the Muslims, or I believe it's whatever, the uh, uh, Freemasons or whatever. It's, uh, it's actually a little obscure. Most people don't. Freemasons have sort of fallen out of fashion. Um, you know, it coalesces around that. But the thing is, most, most of these groups, because, the th- <laughs> because it is imagined that these people want to control like literally the entire planet, there isn't really much natural limit on, on what you can shoehorn into that. Like, let's say you believe the globalists want to control the world economy, right? Um, well, everything is part of the world economy. So, you know, um, like what isn't part of the world economy? I mean, healthcare is part of the economy. The university systems are part of the economy. You know, politicians make huge contributions to determining who wins and loses in the economy. Like, uh, so if, if that's your theory, then it could, I, I actually met a guy who was a Trump conspiracy theorist and I asked him, and I say, I mean, that's broad, but I mean like stuff, what I mean is that, you know, oh, the media, you know, he, he, he won the election and they're not reporting it. And, uh, Trump is like super smart, but they're hiding the fact that his IQ is so high. Like, it was just sort of like this generalized sense that Trump was this wonderful guy, but everyone was like hiding the truth of this. Um, but I asked him what had originally radicalized him politically. And you know what the issue was? The issue was local bike lanes. Like he opposed the construction of a bike lane on a street. I forget what the reason was. I mean, you know, there's legitimate reasons to not want to buy, I don't know, maybe you want to park your car and whatever. And then, like, he got involved at City Hall. He lived in a big American city. And I don't know, he didn't like the way he was treated. Or maybe, you know, I mean, there's a lot of city politics in the United States are legitimately rotten. Like, it's this happens in Toronto. It's just, you know, you go to a, a City Hall meeting and people act like they're not listening to you and they just, they have an agenda and they want to ram it through. And he became really incensed and he kind of became a local activist and he got on all these mailing lists. And the kind of people who were really active in local politics often, um, you know, they, they have very strong political views about all sorts of things. Uh, and, and that was it. He was off the races. And, 
and but he still talked about the bike lane issue. Like it's not he he still would occasionally get into like a speech about the bike lane issue when he was talking about all this other stuff. Uh, it had, he wasn't able it, to move past the well, initial. It, I mean, it was it was that, but it was also like his fascination with bike lanes. Again, there's an absolute grain of truth to it. So he believed bike lanes is, are promoted by environmentalists. True. Uh, he believed environmentalists oppose the use of the internal combustion engine and the automobile more general. Not true. Uh, he believed that, that Democrats in general um, are more skeptical of fossil fuels and big corporations than Republicans. Okay, true. Um, so it's like three or four steps from national politics and enormous questions of national industrial policy and signing on to Copenhagen and Paris and all these international climate agreements, there is like, there is a linkage to local issues like, like bike lanes. It's not, it's not imagined. I mean, it's true. Like, I mean, especially if you get on Twitter, the kind of people who are like promoting, look, I love bike lanes. I'm a cyclist, but it is true that if you go on Twitter and the sort of people who are maniacs for bike lanes, like they tend to be really hardcore environmentalists or, they're kind of like Birkenstock, you know, granola types. Like it's just, that's kind of the people who get really involved in this. I use bike lanes. I like bike lanes, but I'm not an activist. And, and they became his villain figure. Like, I think he was obsessed with the Sierra club. Um, and you know, which also figures in a lot of these mythologies. Um, but so you start with bike lanes, then right. again, we're, we're expanding to the next level that has to be involved, the next level. How, that could go all the way to the very tops of government, right? Because it took you four steps oh, to go from a local issue yeah. to a national oh, absolutely. issue. And I, I imagine just two more steps to an international. But is, yeah, but this is was there... Alexandria, Alexandria, Virginia, by the way. This was, um, this, and, and, and this guy, like, he was a fairly well-known academic. Like, he wasn't, I'd actually heard of him before I interviewed him. <laughs> Like, and he, I visited him in his home. A lot of these guys I visited in their home and they were, I don't think I ever came away from any of these meetings, like not liking these people, um, including like I'm Jewish, but including the anti-Semites, uh, like I, I didn't meet any anti-Semites who didn't give me any interviews. Um, and they knew I was Jewish. They didn't care. They were, you know, they were happy to talk. Um, I often like felt sorry for these guys. I mean, often these guys like were just weird guys and, uh, they were floundering around intellectually trying to find some way to conceptualize the universe. But, but this, I mean, this guy, this bike lane guy was a super smart guy. He just, you know, he couldn't get out of this like sort of spiral he was in. in terms well, he, drew, of, he was able to draw a line between all these things that made sense. And right. so he was able to start at a small level and work his way up to this grand level of what his, you know, his linear progression of distrust, but does it ever go the other way? Isn't, couldn't it for argument's sake be said, that the government who, you know, the, eco, the uh, environmentalists who are against the fossil fuels are the reason that they're starting the bike lanes, you know, kind of reversing, reverse engineering his thinking that led for him to become so radicalized. Couldn't, isn't the argument that the other way brings you into it? It's possible. I, I haven't thought systematically about that. What I will say, though, is that a lot of people who have really weird theories about politics on an abstract level on like a national level or something actually like are fair often will be very functional with their neighbors. And um, like there was this case study in the book I talk about, I think it's under the rubric of cosmic traveler. Where's this? I think it was like San Gabriel, California. It was like an hour or two outside San Francisco is this guy 
who had these like these really ambitious theories about 9-11 and the security state and how they're like, they're going to kill people. And everybody who exposes this is like under threat. And like, it was really um, sort of action movie stuff. But the guy himself lived in this really open concept glass house where like literally like 70% of the house was made of glass where even from, from the highway, you could kind of like see him moving around in his bedroom. And like, I can't think of a more vulnerable way for a person to live. So his, his own, he had made peace in his own personal environment with, with his you know, neighbors and his, you know, he, he had to live in the world. He had to wake up every day and buy food. A lot of these people, they say, oh, our food is poisoned. Our air is poisoned. You know, they're like, you know, they go to the grocery store, they're eating food. They, um, a lot of these 9-11 guys think that the government is going to shoot down all these airliners, but they're traveling by airliner all around the United States to give their presentations. And there was one guy, actually, his name is Richard Gage. I mentioned him in the book. I said, I said, I said look, you talk about how the government has no compunction at all about murdering hundreds of people and shooting down airliners in the name of this conspiracy you have. But you're on a plane all the time because you're in demand to talk at universities about, you know, to these credulous audiences about your conspiracy theories. Um, aren't you scared the government's like going to say, oh, great, Rich, you know, Richard Gage is on this plane. Let's, <laughs> let's shoot that one down. Because um, to my mind, that's like a contradiction. But he freaked out because he thought I was threatening him. Uh, he thought like, oh, you know, what are you saying? Like, and I, it's true. I, was still, I should have known better than to say that because to a paranoid frame of mind, it does kind of sound threatening. But I said, no, I, I'm not threatening you. I just, I just think like, I'm, I was trying to resolve the contradiction about how a person could believe the government is so horrifyingly evil and will kill all these people. And yet you, he conducts himself in the world exactly like the way you and I would conduct ourselves. Like we just kind of, you know, we, we buy things, we go on planes, we visit people, um, we have credit cards, we vote in elections. Like, and, and to a certain extent, extent it's just they have to compartmentalize their thinking because if you if you take that level of paranoia and extend it to your everyday life you'd become like you'd starve it you'd never eat food you'd never leave your house uh you'd believe there were bugs everywhere um like talking about transmission radio transmission bugs um and so they just they firewall their regular life from their theories well, the the uh, wheel never stops turning, and if 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 you've made your enemy the government, it's it's not like you're at a battle lose trying to you know you you have something to lose. It's almost as though you've already lost. If if the government yeah, is I mean, behind all this, if there is a new world, yeah, yeah. It, it seems like if there is a new world order, they're already running things. It's not there, a debate. There, yeah, so there is a certain fatalism to it that the enemy is so powerful that it's almost can't be stopped. But I think I mentioned this in the book that to a certain extent. They're not trying to stop the enemy because it's so powerful, but they're trying to mark themselves as people who are like, you know, in the matrix, the blue pill, red pill thing. And I always forget, which is the pill that you, you, you take that it's like, you see the truth. I want to say it's blue, but I yeah, really so whichever the pill is that makes you see the truth. They see themselves as people who have the courage to take that pill. And, and that's important to them that, that they, and, and, you know, we all want to think of, of ourselves that way we all like that's not unusual we um we, we want to think of ourselves as people who reject comforting myths 
I mean, atheists, that's a talking point among atheists, though. Uh, they'll say, you know, I, I don't need your, you know, the opiate of the masses uh, to get through life. I, I recognize that the existence is, is pointless, uh, but I still will per- persevere, you know, because I'm more intellectually independent than all of you. So there's, there's an element of that. And it's, you're right that it is, there's, it's sort of fatalistic. But even, even within the fatalism, there's, they feel there's it's a point of pride that they, <laughs> they have to tell the universe that like they know who's really running things. And so I'm sorry, I've talked a lot. I, I better go now. Um, no, thank you, John, uh, yeah. for your, your time with us. This is great. I, I learned actually a, an incredible amount and oh. it's only going to lead to more questions, sadly. I hope some of it is true. I'm conflicted. I chose a skeptic because I myself am a skeptic. And he said everything I needed to hear. But isn't that confirmation bias? Everything Jonathan said about conspiracy theories made sense to me as it would. How easy it is to fall into that mindset once you've started. How we're all eager to believe more and more if it reinforces what beliefs we already hold. But I went into this interview looking for those answers. I wanted to dismiss the messages I've been receiving and I wanted an expert to give me permission to do so. Problem is, he and I also talked about how these beliefs tend to stem from a single grain of truth, and that, that gave me pause. What is Noah's grain of truth? Are these messages mine? Selfishly, I'm concerned for myself as I travel the slippery slope down the rabbit hole. I need to talk with more experts as I'm wholly unprepared for this adventure. I too have never owned hiking boots. All right, so thank you to Curious Cast for your support and for Jonathan Kay for sitting down to speak with me. He's written a number of books on a number of subjects and he's certainly a worthwhile read. I'll be back in a couple of weeks if I can get another interview. Otherwise, I'll see you when I get new messages for another episode of Escaping Denver.